So this morning, let's dig in. Oliver, I don't know if we can do just a little more. I, I don't know if I'm, am I okay in the room? I feel like I don't want anyone to sleep. So, uh, okay. Why don't you stand with me one more time, if you're able to do so, and willing. And there's no coercion here in the kingdom. Um, and we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3. And uh, we'll be starting actually with verse 11, which is where we left off last time we were in this. So I want to encourage you to read this with me. Uh, it'll be on the screen. I'm going to use the uh, New English translation, the second edition today, and uh, it'll be similar to what's on the screen. But hear this, we're going to read verse 11 through 17, then we're going to unpack it today, ask some application questions, and send you on your way into uh, a new week, hopefully tending to God's presence through Scripture and community. So let's read together. Uh, you can just listen, rather. Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. I'm going to read 11 again. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. And then the passage that we'll spend most of the time on today is just a few short verses. Uh, one of my favorite passages, by the way, and uh, therefore... Therefore, what is it there for? As the elect of God, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself, clothe yourself with a heart of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive others. And to all of these virtues, add or put on or cloak over love, which is the perfect bond. And let the peace of Christ be in control of your heart. For you were in fact called as one body to this peace, this peace of Christ. And be thankful. The last two verses. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with all grace in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Lord, thank You for this Scripture. Thank You that we can come to the written Word to encounter the living Word, Jesus. And I pray today that as we have sung as we have talked, as we will talk throughout this week, as we will serve, as we will make a difference in our world, that what we do here and what you speak through your word will help shape that and form that. For the secular liturgies all around us are trying to press us into their mold, and you say, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, Lord, we want to see that happen in this place today. May it be a next steps moment for someone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Please be seated, everyone. There's some wonderful language in this text and imagery that Paul brings us. I, the one that really popped out to me was this idea of new clothing, new clothing. We choose wardrobes all the time, what we're going to wear. You chose this morning, if you knew what you were coming into here, you remembered, I'm going to wear layers because it's winter and the windows will be open because of COVID. Uh, you chose that this morning. And if you were not aware, you're freezing, and I apologize, but fresh air, yay. Yay. Um, I've said this passage, and this passage comes up often uh, in several weddings because it's such a beautiful passage. And I often will say, talking about this passage, the part where he says, be clothed in love or put love over all the other clothing, is that clothes can be functional. 
Like, I wear a swimsuit in the pool. You don't want to see that, but I, I do. Um, clothes can be formal, right? Like, when you go to a special event or a banquet or an award ceremony and you're to receive an award, oftentimes you wear something different to mark that occasion that there's something unique going on. Obviously, we do this a lot like in a funeral or weddings, these special occasions that mark a major life change, either embracing new life, new relationship, or recognizing a life that has left us. Clothes can also be used to deceive, right? Uh, and I mentioned this before too, if I wear a police uniform but I'm not an officer of a law, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a criminal activity because it's very deceptive. It's saying there's an authority represented by the uniform that I don't actually have legitimacy to, to, to wield. I don't have legitimacy to, to wield the authority that the uniform represents. There was a wonderful CBC article um, by a man who was a, a second-generation, first-generation immigrant to Canada talking about sort of the smell of thrift store. And I don't have his experience, but my family when I was young was thrust into poverty because of our family disintegration. And I remember that going into, uh, and, and even today, we may thrift and do those kinds of things, but it's more choice than forced um, because of uh, economic choices. But I remember there being no other choice and the smell and the distinctiveness of that. I, I don't have the link to the article, but if you uh, message me later, I'll send it to you. It was a beautiful article. It was tear-jerking, and, uh, and many of us, I think, can relate to it in stages of our life. So Paul talks about clothes here, what we're wearing. I could just pause and preach about the clothes piece of it and miss the rest of the text. Let me just, give me 30 seconds, okay? Jacob was here last week. He goes on forever. Um, my mentor, no, <laughs> one of them. And actually, the mentor that I had growing up went much longer. But um, this idea of, sometimes people have said to me in the church, uh, especially maybe more traditional church, that I should dress up more as I preach. And I mean to be, and in my best, I'm loving. I've heard this phrase say, well, if you were to visit the President of the United States, would you wear what you're wearing this morning, Pastor? Well, maybe the current one. Ah, don't scratch that from the record. <laughs> I might have a t-shirt with some words on it, too. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh, that was, that's not the Holy Spirit, by the way. That was not the Holy Spirit. That was the, that was the flesh manifesting. Had, uh, had, uh, had uh, or someone would say this, um, if, if the queen, if you were to visit the queen, I'm an immigrant here. I really don't have strong opinions about the queen. But anyway, uh, if you were to visit the queen, is that what you would wear, Pastor? And then I think of this, if my Father in heaven loves me beyond what I could ever imagine, and I think of my children, and if they needed something and they came to me, I don't care what they're wearing at all, because I love them. I'm delighted that they come into my presence. Now, if the queen was my mother, or the president was my father, I don't think they really care. I like this, well, there's a story about Abraham Lincoln and his little son running in, Todd Lincoln, and comes into a meeting, and the whole meeting stops because Todd has entered the room, the son of the president, clothing. Well, let's move on in this passage. So this passage is pretty amazing. Verse 11, we didn't get quite through last time, so I just want to touch on it for a second. Paul says this, I like how one, one biblical scholar says this, he says, identity who we are at the deepest part emerges not from our ethnicity, not from our heritage, 
We might add modern sexuality identity categories or status in the Roman Empire, but from Christ. And he uses this pair of contrasts here. Look at verse 11. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew. Uh, and obviously within Judaism, very exclusive boundary markers of a who is in and who's out, like many religious systems today. Um, and he says there is neither Greek nor Jew. In Christ, this ethnic identity marker is tore down when we become part of the church. There is a new identity that we are given. Goes on and uses the same boundary marker within the difference, circumcised or uncircumcised. It does not matter in Christ. Barbarian, Scythian, these are interesting categories. Barbarian would have been uh, tribes from up, up, up in, uh, in old Europe. Bar and the Greeks heard their language as sounding uh, like a bar, bar, bar sound to them. And so they developed this word barbarian for these northern tribes out into, uh, out into to, to, uh, up into what we'd call Europe and, and east of there and what, like anywhere outside of the Roman Empire, up north somewhere. So these northerners, uh, said, there's, there's neither north nor the Scythians who were uh, sort of another generic term to talk about those people that were from the south uh, below the Roman Empire and they thought that they were more, um, uh, uh, you know, not as, 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 uh, as refined as the Romans, that their violence was too uncouth compared to the Roman violence, whatever that would mean. And so to the south, and he's using this north and south categories, that in Christ these things do not matter. Woo, geography nationality, tearing down those walls. Slave nor free. In the ancient world, we don't have time to unpack the difference between slavery versus race-based slavery versus economic slavery, but the fact that he's, he's using these categories here, meaning economic barriers, tearing down economic barriers, but in Christ, all in all. And I could pause and preach a whole message about economic barriers. I think sometimes we deal with, um, we, we have to deal with um, sort of that the, the sinfulness of racism, and we talk about that here at Pilgrim, as awkward as it can be. Um, but you know what I find is a bigger barrier in a lot of situations isn't whether our, our families of origin or ethnicity or nationality, it's economic. I think economic barriers are ones that are even harder. People that don't smell similarly, that kind of thing where we have different, uh, I think that economic issue is a huge one. Don't have time to preach that today, but here it is in the text. So verse 11, Paul is saying that in Christ there is something new that's happening that in Christ there is a new creation and we are called to be a new humanity. And how do we wrestle with this in terms of wokeness and critical race theory? How do we wrestle with this in terms of hyper-conservatives? How do we wrestle with this? But the text, Jesus calls us to do that, to tear down walls and figure out ways to submit to one another in love. And generally when that happens, the person with more power in that context needs to be more in the listening posture when we're wrestling through these issues. Okay, that's verse 11, whole sermon right there. Now let's get to the text for today. I didn't get to finish that last time. Are you still awake, amen? amen. Some of you are. Okay, great. Uh, I'll try to tell more self-deprecating jokes. That'll keep it, keep it moving, right? So then he goes into this passage. He just gave us before verse 11 a list of things that were to put off in Christ. Because of what Christ is doing in you, these are sort of the, the things, the vices that we need to be aware of. And I love that he's preaching to a church that this stuff is in the church. People are dealing with all kinds of sexual issues in the ancient world, just like today. People are coming into the kingdom, they're finding Jesus, but they still have stuff going on in their lives. And so Paul's encouraging them to say, become what Christ is, become the best version of yourself, flourish in all that you are. 
And in that viceless, in the, in the first part of chapter 3, he gives vices around desire, that our desires can be shaped and changed. Sometimes we hear this lie that our desires are just what it is. I use the, the thing of, I was a, you know, if I was a stove-touching toddler, uh, that somehow that uh, becomes my innate identity for all of my life, which is nonsense. And Paul says we grow up into Christ because of what the Spirit is doing in us and, it, and re- regarding our desires. And then he also says the second list of sin lists there are viceless our sins of our mouth, disunity. And it's funny because you'll see Christians that'll get really hopped up about different sexual issues, but their mouths, oh my goodness, they make the devil blush, you know? And they may not be swearing, but it's their cutting down, it's their constant negativity, it's their lack of encouragement. And so he also addresses sins of disunity. I love in the New Testament these vice lists. Uh, Paul always links together things like uh, the church gets all worked up about sex and sexuality, and then he throws in all these other things as well. And if you find yourself uh, being a libertine on either one of those lists, bring them back together and wrestle because all of us learned we need the grace of Jesus. We need to tap into the spirit of Christ within us if we're going to grow in these areas of our lives. And so now he moves to the virtue list and he gives these, these, this list of good things. So as elect of God, as holy, dearly beloved, this first verse 12, he gives this beautiful thing here. He calls you and I the elect of God. We are, when we receive Christ, we join God's chosen people And as a child of God, you are made holy because of Christ in you, and you are dearly loved because he created you. In fact, you're dearly loved before you come to Christ. He loves you even while you are denying his existence. God's love is poured towards you again and again and again by the gracious working of the Spirit in all of the world. And he says, because of you are dearly loved, Because you're becoming awakened to your Jesus identity, that your core identity is Christ, here are things that the Spirit is working within you. He wants you to be someone who is merciful. And I love this list here, this call, this idea of of His giftedness of love that empowers us to become more loving towards others. Mercy is that, that there is a consequence of sin, and yet when there's grace and truth, There is sort of this release. Mercy and grace are woven together. He talks about this idea, again, um, for true community, these virtues are forms that love takes. Love is a heart of mercy. Love is kindness, which is grace in action and attitude, being kind. He says love also does this. Love is humble. Humility allows us to cross boundaries intentionally. And when our social status or our history or all of those things that society tells us to put up walls around, call for walls and boundaries, humility allows us to enter in to one another's situation. And then he uses these last two here, and then we'll get to the rest. He says we need to be people who are gentle and patient. Gentleness is knowing when to renounce your rights for the sake of someone else. I have the right to demand X, Y, and Z, but gentleness knows when should I not be demanding? When should I just let myself enter into that? And patience, again, is refusing to react with anger or rage when it's for the good of a greater vision. There's a time to channel anger, and there's a time to simply be patient and sit with others in those moments for the sake of something greater, which in this case is love. All right, let's move on. So that's the virtue list. There's other sections in this, so the virtue list, and then he gives us more instructions. So what do we do with that? Verse 13, he clarifies the list, he supplements the list, he adds to the list, and he says, be forgiving. And I like how C.S. Lewis puts this, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. (laughs) 
Forgiveness is, of course I'll forgive, until you actually are experiencing offense. And he uses a very unique word here. There's a distinct word that Paul uses for forgiveness, that we translate forgiveness. In fact, some biblical scholars say we should translate it something a little, more, a little differently. In fact, the, the word is a little different than the normal word for forgiveness, but it means to show grace. It uses the word of charis, which is great, uh, grace in Greek, and zomai, this act of showing and so this uh, coming together, this word he uses is unique. In fact, McKnight tells us we should use the word or use the phrase maybe show grace or be gracious is better than forgiveness. Learn to be gracious because of what God has done in you. To be honest, in Paul's churches, the social tensions would have, uh, they would have been full of complaints. There would be people confessing guilt. There would have been people dealing with all kinds of stuff. And Paul's saying deal with it honestly, but still let forgiveness rule. He doesn't want us to simply separate, and, and so much of that separation is people we demand today, but rather that we learn to submit to one another in love. And again, the one with the most power or the real or perceived hurt in the situation, or the, again, real perceived, that person starts in these acts and conversations of humility. Verse 13. Okay, I got to go on here. Uh, and to all of these virtues, add love, which is the perfect bond. Say it with me, add love. I want you to stay awake with me. I, I know I'm, I'm doing a little bit of a deep dive today, but stay with me. This is good stuff. Add love. The imagery here in the language is this idea of all those other virtues sort of help describe what does loving activity look like. And the language is also this idea of love as sort of a cloak that binds all of the other things together, that love brings it all together. Uh, it ties all the virtues together, or maybe even a belt is in view. And perhaps it's just this idea that he's saying, above all, love is, this is what love looks like. And so this is the totality, or, or and love transcends this as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says this as well. He talks about spiritual gifts. He says, you can be the most charismatic person in the world. You can heal the sick. You can give everything you have to the poor. You can be the wokest of the wokest of the woke. But if it's not done in love, it means nothing. That's a Christian challenge to every culture in all seasons and all times, isn't it? Without love, it's just noise. Because love creates the environment for something new to emerge. Love can turn the oppressed and the oppressor into a new spiritual family. Love can transform us out of all of the identity divisions that our culture uses. Uh, now, there's good stuff in some of that, but love says there's more. There's a greater picture that we're to aim for. Martin Luther King Jr. talks about this idea of the, creating the beloved community, and he was shaped and formed by Jesus and the gospel of peace, that shalom and wholeness is the goal, and that the church is one of the greatest vehicles on earth to accomplish this. Sometimes we settle for so much less. So let me go on a little more here in the text. Are you still with me? Amen? Amen. Love holds it together. Well, let me define love a little more just before we, we get to the last part. Thomas Ord writes this, and I like this as a great definition of love. He says, to love is to act intentionally, intentionally in a sympathetic or empathetic response, engaging yourself emotionally, in response to God and to others to promote overall well-being. There's an action, there's a thinking, there's action, there's emotion to God and to others to promote well-being of all. Love is about doing good, beneficial, positive, or helpful. And in the scripture, there's three kinds of love. I got to give you this before we get to the last part. I'll preach a little more. There's three basic words for love that we see in New Testament. The, the, we often say in English, agape or agapa. Uh, it's in spite of love. Say, in spite of love. 
This is the, what sometimes is called the God kind of love. Agape or agapa. It promotes, it extends, and it attempts to establish peace in response or against that which is promoting sin, evil, and demonic. This is love that we love in spite of the situation. When we work to tear down walls, we often have to exercise the, the agape, the, that kind of in spite of love. And that's something that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that in our own strength. We're not even trained to do it in our cultures at all. But agape, or agape is this in spite of love. The other kind of love in Scripture is eros. Say it with me, eros. Well, you all know where that's going. I was going to do the little phrase, but I, I, though the Holy Spirit is helping me. All right. Maybe a Marvin Gaye comment there. Eros, because of love. Say it with me, because of love. Because of love. Eros responds intentionally to promote well-being by affirming or seeking to enhance value. It affirms what is already good and beautiful and valuable and, of course, in the creatures of God. And it goes way beyond just, we get our word erotic, obviously, from that root, but it goes way beyond that, this idea of because of love, because I'm experiencing beauty and joy and value, this kind of positive circumstance, and when I respond to that, this is that type of love that we express, sort of the eros love. And then the third kind of love, say it with me, is uh, philia or koinonia love. It's, uh, let's use English phrases, it's alongside of love. Say it with me, alongside of, alongside of love. And this is a love that responds, again, to promote well-being by deeper levels of friendship and cooperation. It works together through fellowship. And these three kind of loves we are called to exercise as believers. All right, there's more I want to say, but I got to move on. All God's people said, amen. Amen, all right. He moves to general instructions here, and I'm just going to pick out a few things here. Verse 15 through 17, let the peace of Christ be in control of your heart. This idea that we are to be ruled by God's peace that is demonstrated in Jesus and by His Spirit dwelling within us. You know, if you know someone who really knows Christ, you will see in them often this sense of peace, this non-anxiousness that isn't just temporary or fake. And they can be dramatic or non-dramatic in their personality type, but there's something about them that breathes. This is not all there is. I can chill out a little bit. God is at work. And verse 16 goes on and says this, and, he, and, and as he transitions from 15 to 16, he says, and be thankful. This idea of thankfulness shaping us, the words that we use, are, do we exercise thankfulness? And verse 16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this, this logos of Christ, this word of Christ here is not, sometimes us Baptists want to say, well, that's the scripture, right? Yes and no, it's more than the scripture. It's the scripture, what the scripture speaks to about Jesus. That we are to be Jesus-saturated people that we are to use Scripture to help the Word of Christ, who is the living Christ, become more real to us throughout our lives. And he said, and then he switches, then he moves on in verse 16, he says, teaching and exhorting. Teaching is sort of the positive side of that, and exhorting one another is sort of the negative side. So there is this idea of telling the truth in love. That's more of the exhorting side. And then there's also this teaching side, which is, which is learning about God and learning from one another and from Scripture. And then he does this interesting turn here teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom. And again, the wisdom is being defined by Christ, who is our definition of love. And love is defined and given some definition in this passage by these virtues of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience with one another. This marks our community as followers of Jesus. 
And when we're not moving in that direction, we are following some other mission and we cease to function in a healthy way as a church. And then he says this, in the middle, uh, end of verse 16, he says, teaching and exhorting one another. And he says, how to do it? In all wisdom. Okay, the logos, all of, all of that. So there's this aspect of teaching. There's an aspect of what we're doing in preaching, which Paul did and wrote letters and all that. But then he says this, and I want my son Oliver to listen up because this one is for him. This one, I said I'm going to name drop in every sermon. This is for you, buddy. And the rest of you can listen in. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom, singing. Say it with me, singing. Oh, say it like you mean it, singing. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with all grace in your hearts to God. Now, if I were to back up, and Jacob, I love you. I know you're never going to watch this, so I'm really safe. Uh, but one of the things we do in church, and yes, with COVID masks, and maybe if we have to, if things get really bad, we'll sing in our homes, but you need to sing. Christians are a singing people. We have a singing faith. We believe, oh, I, I have a little C.S. Lewis Aslan quote just zipped in my brain there. And some, I love this idea. I don't know if it's true or not in Genesis, but he has the idea that God sang us into being. I like that. He used his words, but he didn't just speak. He actually sang the words. I think it's in, 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 is it in Nehemiah or Nahum where it talks about God sings over you in your sleep. Woo, think about that. You're going through hell. You're going through, your father in heaven loves you so much. He takes great delight in you no matter what's going on and all of the battles within and without. He sings over you. He delights in you. And Paul tells us this, that in church, one of the things we do when we gather is to demonstrate the kingdom. And one way is we demonstrate the kingdom against all of the, of the evil and brokenness of the world is to sing to one another and to declare the goodness of God with the depths of our being and let joy sort of come out of us. And that when we sing, it's not just... See, here's the thing. When we gather as a church, God promises to be uniquely present. That's where I disagree with Jacob, by the way. He, I know he disagreed. I know he was a little harsh on that, but then I look at what he actually does. So I'm going to follow the theology he does, not what he said there. Uh, what we do here actually matters. I don't know if you notice, but when you come into this place, sometimes our energy is high, sometimes our energy is low. We're all going through different things. The weather's cold, the weather's hot, this, that, or the other thing. I'm dealing with this in my life. My grandmother just died. There's something, though, when I gather with the people of God and I raise my voice with songs, even if it's bad music, thank the Lord we generally have good music. Amen. Everyone give Andreas a shout out. Okay, all right. Uh, but even if it's bad, even if he's out of tune and, and the piano's in another key and the musicians are stumbling over themselves, I choose to be a worshiper because I have learned over the years that when I set my heart through music and voice to the Lord, His Holy Spirit comes in a unique way and there is an empowerment and there is a play of the Holy Spirit that reminds me that there's another thing at work in the world. And Paul says this, one way we teach each other is through hymns and songs and spiritual songs. Now, I could break that all down for you. Psalms, songs or psalms, or it's referring to the Hebrew Bible, the psalms that they would have known in the early church that they would have taken up from Judaism and the Old Testament, those psalms. Hymns would have been the newer music in that time. He's using the word hymn, and by the way, hymns in the first century, they didn't even have the same Western tonal scales that we use sort of globally now. The chants of the early church were these Christ hymns, Philippians 2. There's other examples of these hymns that were created to glorify Christ and to put the theology of the church to music, hymns. Some people get upset about changes in music. I'm always like, well, yes, we can do the old stuff, we can do the new stuff. Don't pit them against each other. But there is no one era that's like the golden era of church music. Yeah, I like hymns, but you know, 
the first centuries of the church, if you know music history at all, I was a music major when I first went to college, uh, if you know music, music history at all, the tonal scales of the ancient church were nothing like the sort of Western hymns that developed, totally different stuff, the chanting. Uh, listen to some Greek Orthodox church chant sometime, you'll get a good idea of what some of that early stuff would have sounded like. And then he says spiritual songs, and I'm almost done, I promise you. Oliver also pays attention to how many times I say that and land the plane, by the way. It's the joy of having a teenager. You said land the plane way too early. Okay. Wow, Oliver's got allies today. I, I hear it. My children, you always have allies in the church. Um, spiritual songs. Now, I think the best way to understand this, and I'm leaning a lot on McKnight and Ben Witherington and other biblical scholars, are those spontaneous Holy Spirit songs. Now, Baptists, we are bad at this. Um, we need to learn more from our charismatic wing. But there's a time in prayer, there's a time in prayer gatherings, there's a time when we should learn to cultivate spontaneous songs to Christ. And if you're scared to do it in public worship, do it in your own private life. Learn to sing out a song to Jesus. Learn to put some thoughts that you're wrestling with, the positive, sometimes it can be the negative as well, but put it in music to the Lord. So it can mean that within your own language. I, others would also argue, uh, and I am inclined to agree with it, uh, like Scott McKnight, uh, again, I've really been reading a lot of his stuff, uh, that this could also mean sort of singing in tongues, and I'll Baptists really get weirded out about that one. Uh, but I was saved in a Pentecostal church, so I've heard this, and sometimes it's one of the most beautiful sounds you can possibly hear. And sometimes it's really weird and awkward, and I'm just like, oh, dear Lord, these people brought me to Jesus. Um, but there's something about letting yourself be caught up. In fact, some people receive the gift of tongues through worship, either through deep grief, where they're overwhelmed emotionally, and they just run out of words, and they're pouring their heart out to God, and all of a sudden, they experience these syllables that they begin to speak out. Others experience it in joy. They're overwhelmed by goodness. They're overwhelmed by joy. Maybe it was the birth of a kid. Maybe it was um, a, a marriage. Maybe it was just something beautiful, and you're just overwhelmed by God's provision, and that's how some people receive the gift of tongues. Others receive it through prayer meetings and all of that, but Paul's saying, hey, let that be part of your expression. Holy Spirit-inspired singing in your language that you know, and maybe even uh, language that you don't know. Grace your hearts to God. And then finally he lands and says, whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see this thanksgiving is woven throughout this passage. And whatever you do, whatever you do, let it be focused on Christ. To be a Christian is to ask, what would Jesus do? Where is Jesus in this? Where do I feel Jesus is not in this? How is Jesus uh, present with me in the midst of pain? Everything you do is shaped by Christ. That is the follower of Christ. Learn his teachings, marinate in his presence. And he's saying, whatever you do, let Jesus be the focus in the center and give thanks to God through him. So let me give you next steps this morning as we prepare to leave. For real, landing the plane, Oliver. The first thing I want you to remember this morning is you are being shaped. Will you let Jesus shape you and will you take this new set of clothes? The Bible talks about in Christ we are given a new name. In fact, there's an old hymn, gospel song that says this, I've got a new name written down in glory and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Our older folks who know this that might be watching online, you're singing with me. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, never more to roam. Anybody know that one? Got a new name written down in glory. 
Another image here in the New Testament is new clothing. I think of those times as a kid, if I got something new, how joyous it was. And in Christ, we are clothed again. And he gives us this clothing. We are to put on mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If someone claims to be a Christian and they don't have any of this or they're not working on cooperating with the Spirit already in them, already making them that, he's working in us. It's not just by sheer will. It's by grace working in us. If we're not growing in love that binds all the virtues together, that's the true test of discipleship. Are we growing more loving? What are you being shaped by? Let Jesus shape you and give you the new set of clothing that's listed here, bound together by love. The second next steps this morning, what are you singing? Say it with me, what are you singing? Yeah, I mean, I got saved in fundamentalism, a fundamentalist version of Pentecostalism. And I was taught we don't sing anything secular. I still struggle with that today. I really do. It's a real big thing in my, it's just a battle I'm going to have to deal with because of the legalism. There were so many good gifts, but there were some negative gifts. But the part they definitely got right was Christians need to sing about Jesus. We need to let Jesus fill our mouth. We need to have at least some music that pushes against the, white, the whitewashing, the brainwashing of the imperial powers around us. We need some music that comes from the bottom up about Jesus and the kingdom of God. What are you singing? When you come into church, again, adjusting for COVID and all the things, but there's something about making melody in our heart. When we couldn't sing, we hummed, you know? And if we can't sing at all, then we need to at least have let the music in our minds. And when we're alone, learn to sing songs of the kingdom of God, who Jesus is. And third and finally, have you invited the spirit of Jesus into your everyday life? There are many practices we can do to saturate our daily lives with Christ, but there is a call to this in all that we do, that we are to glorify Christ and to be Christ-shaped. Now, yes, I agree with Jacob on so many things, but this little bit of two hours on Sunday, it may have been insignificant, and I get what he was saying, and I agreed with most of the message, by the way, just FYI. Um, but this is a model. This is a laboratory of love. This is, a, this is something that helps shape us and empower us to think differently when we go into our weeks. There's nothing else like this. And even being in physical proximity, there's a sense of the Holy Spirit, the energy of God's presence in the room when we gather in His name. There's something here that helps form us and call us up into a different way of being human and simply doing it in isolation. I come from Mennonite. On one side, I'm a Mennonite family. And some of the Mennonites would be so good at service, so good at compassion, would do all kinds of things, which would burn out over-functioning with compassion, get more energy, and then burn out again over and over again. And some of that was beautiful in kingdom. But you also need the side of play. You also need the side of, in some ways, what we're doing is totally irrelevant, and that's what makes it all the more relevant to bringing life to us. That what we do here shapes us in a new way. And so we need to remember that, that play and service come together and teaching, and singing, and celebrating that there's empowerment in this. And there has been, because for 2,000 years, Christians have understood it. As, as the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing, but even more so as you see the day approaching. Whatever the day, the end of the world, the new creation, the trials before us, the current pandemic, wars and rumors of wars, that this releases the under power of God in our lives and in our world. Stand with me this morning. Let's pray and get out of here.
Next Sunday, we're going to get into some super practical stuff on relationships because that comes up in the text. And um, we'll have a little bit of fun with talking about the role of men and women. And I'm going to give a disclaimer ahead of time. I'll probably tick off everybody. Okay, there we go. <laughs> so all that stuff about forgiveness and love, be clothed in it next Sunday, for sure, when you come to church. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for um, my brothers and sisters who are here today. And God, um, may they read back through this text this week and discern what they've heard from you, from the teaching, and in their home group. And God, may we understand the importance and centrality of love as revealed in Jesus. That it binds all the virtues together. And that it is a clothing that we are to cooperate with you with, to put on. And that we are to take off those other vices the misuse of desire, the misuse of our tongue, of sins of disunity. And Lord, forgive us when we have just let ourselves be clothed in anger and wrath and letting every desire go unchecked, unanalyzed. Help us to then learn to be this community too that is a lab of love as well. And Lord, may we also learn the delight of play and gathering when we sing to one another, and we teach not just through preaching, but also in our singing, also in what we meditate on in our music throughout our week as well, old and new together. Continue to shape us in a new humanity here in South Vancouver, and may we see all those that you desire to be saved experience that in one way or another. In Jesus' name, amen.